Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and today I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. No Alex Lawson this week. He's no. off. Um, he's, aba- he's abandoned us. He has. I mean, that guy. Um, but we have plenty to talk about as usual, so we're going to soldier on. We do. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Alex took his, you know, his weekly trip to the Suez Canal. Um, he, <laughs> He's caused trouble down there. He had a few drinks. He was, you know, going willy nilly with his ship. And, you know, here we are. He 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 moored. He, he sort of grounded his ship and he's destroying global trade. I mean, you know, we, we talk about trade law with a law. I think he was just trying to gin up some stories for himself. That feels right to me. I mean, maybe the trade beat's been a little underwhelming the last few weeks, and he just had to take matters into his own hands. Well, it's funny. We we anytime there's like these. uh, uh, To be clear, just to be clear, Alex did not cause the crisis in the Suez (laughs) Canal. Um, But anytime there's these like you know attention grabbing stories, all of us with our you know all of us at Law Three Hundred and Sixty sort of sit there and go like, is there a legal angle here? And I'm sure there might be eventually, but. Pretty tough to think of, you know, a, an American litigation, uh, uh, you know, angle to talk never about at the never, moment. Never say never, Bill. I feel like any time that thought passes through my mind of like, ooh, is there going to be a lawsuit about this? Uh, almost invariably, we get yes. one eventually. There will be something. But um, but anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we have a good good show this week. Yeah, we talked to one of our reporters, Justin Wise, who did a really interesting story about how the state of Maryland is making changes to how it handles parole for juveniles that were sentenced to life for various crimes. It's really interesting. It is. It's a great. Uh, we had a great chat with Justin. Um, but before then, we're going to talk about a case that we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, the various defamation lawsuits that have been filed by Dominion voting over the uh, debunked conspiracy theories that that claimed that the company's machines had been used to rig the 2020 election. Uh, Sidney Powell, uh, President Trump's former personal lawyer and one of the targets of those lawsuits, uh, trotted out a, a pretty interesting new defense this week to one of those cases um, centered on the... Uh, very interesting suggestion that that people probably wouldn't believe the stuff that she's saying to be factual to begin with. Um, it's 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 an interesting argument um, that that you know might honestly work in this context, but it also I think leaves her you know in at risk in in other cases that it's it's it sort of might have interesting collateral impacts. I can't wait to hear you break this down, Bill, because you're one of our defamation experts. So I want to hear about how that could work for her it's it's a really surprising argument to make at least from an outsider just viewing the case um so before we kind of get into that we might need a quick reset i know we talked about this case extensively before um but just sort of orient us about the the top line stuff we need to know yeah we talked about this case back in episode 183 so if if you want sort of the full breakdown of what is being alleged here go back and listen to that episode um but for our purposes here Dominion sued Powell in January, accusing her of defaming the company by repeatedly claiming that its voting machines were part of this vast conspiracy to rig the election in the favor of Joe Biden. Um, Those claims included uh, the idea that the machines manipulated votes, that um, the company was founded by a Venezuelan entity to help the now deceased Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez rig elections in that country. Um, 
Powell was only one of several people making these claims and and across various news outlets. Um, and, and she's only one of several people to be sued over this. Um, Dominion, as well as another company that was swept up in these series, a company called Smartmatic, um, have, have sued uh, several other people, Rudy Giuliani, um, Mike Lindell, who is the, the MyPillow uh, CEO, people who were spreading this. Um, and Smartmatic has also sued uh, Fox News. Dominion, just this morning, filed a case against Fox News making a lot of these similar claims. So it's a very active, um, ongoing set of cases. But it's all centered around this same idea that that Dominion and Smartmatic have referred to as this this big lie that they were, you know, that they were involved in. The, they were at the center of this vast conspiracy to rig the twenty twenty election. Yeah. So we're at a point with with Sidney Powell in particular where. She's trying to to get out of this lawsuit and and any potential trouble here. Um, I want to dig right into that argument she's making about like, well, people shouldn't believe me anyway. Um, what did she say exactly? Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, it doesn't quite mean the way you know th- this. This is obviously a hyper partisan story, and a lot of things came out quickly when this argument was filed that, you know, she was claiming that nobody believes her at all, but um, yeah. uh, you know, it's not exactly that. It's more of a, a it's a more nuanced legal argument than that. But This but, is so, why I need you, Bill. Set me straight about <laughs> the nuances here, because the top line really was people saying, like, how crazy that she would say, like, I'm not to be believed. Well, so the, the key to a defamation claim is that you said something that someone perceived as factual about someone else, and it was a lie, and it hurt them. So attorneys for Powell filed a motion to dismiss the, the case filed by Dominion this week, arguing that her statements were, were, wouldn't be perceived as the kind of true, false, you know, factual, unfactual statements that, that can form the basis of a defamation case. Her attorneys argued, as you will sometimes see in these cases, that her statements were so clearly hyperbolic and partisan and one-sided um, th- that, you know, that nobody would think that she was stating just objective fact, uh, that that it wouldn't be perceived that way by the viewers who heard her saying this. They pointed to at one point that she described Dominion as having done, quote, the greatest crime of the century, if not the life of the world, uh, and, you know, they cited the fact that that in in bringing these claims, Dominion itself said that they were th- they were these insane theories, bizarre theories. So what they're saying is, sure, that's what they were. And, and you know, th- a reasonable viewer of the news would not believe that this was just some objective thing that we were saying was definitely true about Dominion. I mean, I I sort of see what you're saying that there's more nuance to this than sort of a top line headline would let you believe. But I don't know. There's something about it that just sticks with you as like, does that really make sense? I mean, can you just go around saying like, no, I mean, it's just partisan hyperbole. Don't worry about it. I mean, to be clear, it is still, you know, in, in, if we're getting back to, to planet earth here away from legal arguments, it is still a cell phone. I mean, you are, you are still claiming that you are such an unreliable narrator that, that, you know, a, a reasonable person is going to believe that anything you say is just this like hyperbolic partisan stuff, but it is a fairly standard defense in cases like this. Um, we saw, I believe it was last year or I believe it was 2019. Um, Sorry, the pandemic really messes with your sense of time. Uh, an attorney for Tucker Carlson caught a lot of similar flack for making this exact argument. Um, but then, you know, 
in September of last year, a federal judge dismissed the case on those exact grounds, ruling that the mo- that most viewers of Fox News would not expect quote actual facts to come from Carlson. So it, it is it is you know. I think that I think any attorney will tell you, especially if they're representing high profile clients, that sometimes the arguments that they're making do not look good from the outside. But um, from a pure sort of real politic kind of thing here in terms of getting their client out from under this case, it might just work. Yeah, I mean, this is a tough spot to be in if you're one of these defendants, because, you know, liberals would readily seize on the idea that Tucker Carlson himself has argued in legal documents that you don't expect actual facts from me. Like that's, it feels crazy to say that, but I understand the legal reasoning. Um, But we are talking about more than just a straight up one legal case here. There's, there's other things going on with Sidney Powell in particular that this could cause some problems for her. Right. Yeah, I mean, Powell was, um, she was uh, at one point President Trump's personal attorney, and she really led the charge on those, um, you know, very questionable uh, lawsuits that we saw after the 2020 election, uh, claiming that there had been widespread voter fraud. So she wasn't just making these claims on TV and on social media, she was making some of them in court. And I think that's where we get into really interesting questions about what possible collateral damage might be caused by this, you know, nobody should believe me when I say stuff argument, which is Powell is facing in one of the cases she filed a request for sanctions um, in it's in Michigan federal court. And uh, the city of Detroit is seeking to have her and other attorneys who were behind that case um, banned from that federal district and referred to the, the Michigan state bar, but also their home bars for possible disciplinary proceedings. So, um, it's it it's interesting, and I'll get us out here. It's it's one thing to argue that something you said as a regular person was just exaggeration that that no reasonable person would have taken you literally, but I think it's perhaps another thing entirely for a lawyer who is subject to heightened ethical requirements to make that argument about stuff that they were also at the same time presenting to judges. Uh, there is, there is all, there are many wrinkles here about what the actual ethical requirements are. You're obviously allowed to make sort of different arguments in different cases. There is, there is a lot of factual stuff that will be have to, that will have to be unpacked here, but it will be very interesting to see whether this argument that is being made in the defamation case comes up or causes problems for Powell in these other cases dealing with, uh, you know, discipline as an attorney. Well, Bill, for our second story, I'm actually going to keep us in that realm of legal ethics. Uh, This one's a little more broad, though. I want to talk about the perils of email, specifically some stuff about when you hit reply all to an email. We all know it. We've all done it. It's Lots of trouble, right? We've deeply all seen, unfortunate. Yeah, we've all seen stuff happen where you say something in a reply all that you really wish you'd only said to one individual. Um, but things can get even more complicated for lawyers because they actually have specific obligations to avoid direct communications with opposing parties. So normally the way the ethics work is that lawyers from each side only talk to each other. I think most of our listeners will know that. They, they're not supposed to cut out the attorney and go directly to like a plaintiff or a defendant in the case. But this week, New Jersey's Advisory Committee on Professional Ethics said that when an attorney includes their own client on emails to opposing parties, they're basically giving an implied consent to the opposing attorney that if they hit reply all, that's okay, even if the client sees that response email. It's 
it's something that I've actually encountered as, you know, just doing doing this job where you'll reach out directly to uh, a company or a client or whatever. And then the attorney will get upset and be like, you were supposed to contact me, not them. And I'm like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not ethically <laughs> bound to do this. But uh, but anyway, so t- tell me a little bit about what the background is here with this actual case, because it's a very interesting question. Yeah. So uh, basically, an attorney reached out to the ethics committee because he often includes his clients on emails to opposing counsel. But he kept finding that opposing counsel would regularly just hit that reply all. And the attorney said that violates, you know, attorney ethics because it's like communicating with his client without prior consent. So that's Mm -hmm. against the professional code of conduct. The committee actually disagreed. They ruled that an attorney shouldn't be allowed to claim an ethics violation under these circumstances the way it's laid out. Here's what they said. Reply all in a group email should not be an ethics trap for the unwary or a gotcha moment for opposing counsel. The committee finds that lawyers who include their clients in group emails are deemed to have impliedly consented to opposing counsel replying to the entire group, including the lawyer's client. So pretty straightforward ruling there. Yeah, I mean, it feels like feels a little bit like entrapment if you're if you're including your clients on the reply all and then when someone else replies to all of it that that then you're claiming it's an ethics violation how how did the court actually you know what was their legal reasoning for for what was happening here yeah i mean i actually want us to just sort of talk about the question they were basically facing and see what your take on it is um if you send an email and you CC several people, is that more like a letter that you sent to a variety of recipients or is that more like a conference call where people are just listening in? Yeah, I mean, to me, it feels much more like a conference call. It feels like you're starting a conversation with all those people, not just mass sending a one-way direction. Honestly, Bill, you've never seemed more like a New Jersey guy in giving that <laughs> answer because that's what the state committee said, too. They said the reply all situation it's closer to a conference call than to a letter. They said, well, it's it's clear that an opposing attorney wouldn't be permitted to actually send a letter to a, a client. Um, the conference call is different. So if a lawyer initiates a conference call with opposing counsel and includes a client on the call, that implies that the, the person you've conference called can talk and the client can hear it and that you've consented to all of that by initiating that conference call. So that's how they made the analogies mm-hmm. to this reply all situation. Um, I will say, though, a bunch of other states don't think that that's the right analog. Mm-hmm. They say that uh, it's states like Illinois, Alaska, North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky. So we've got quite a few there who say that the opposite, that this is more like the letter scenario. But the New Jersey committee specifically pointed out that those state associations didn't really think through the informal nature of emails and how often people really do just hit that reply all button. So they were taking a little bit more of a realistic approach, I think, here. Sure. Once again, just real headaches caused by federalism, you know, just just different states causing problems. Um, Yeah. But uh, no, it, it reminds me of uh, we, we, we did a lot of coverage over the years of the ethics rules surrounding uh, attorneys working on cannabis. And, and you know, it's it, for a while it was just like every different state had a different rule. So right. these ethics rules, if you're working in multiple states, are really a, a headache for attorneys. Um, yeah. Is there and anything you- else? Is there anything else here in terms of this this case? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say sort of to wrap it up is that I really do think New Jersey took a really practical view of this because they basically had a lot in this in this decision saying 
how it's pretty hard sometimes to sort out who's even on a group email. You know, you're looking at the, the to field or the CC field in an email. Clients' email addresses might not always just have their name in it. So it just puts a lot of burden on the person who receives the initial email to not be able to hit reply all. And so, you know, they said that there's other ways that lawyers can loop in their clients if they're worried about this. So instead of sending an email with your client on it, they said, you know, you could do some kind of BCC, you could send them the email after the fact. Um, So this was just sort of the practical way of saying like, nah, everybody in New Jersey, don't worry about hitting reply all. That's okay for now. Maryland recently agreed to reform how it handles parole for inmates serving life sentences for crimes they committed as juveniles. The settlement comes from the work done by a team of ACLU and big law attorneys and can lead to broader changes to how parole works in the state. Today we're joined by Law360 reporter Justin Wise to tell us about this change in the criminal justice system. Welcome to the show, Justin. Nice to have you. Hi, Amber. Thanks for having me. Well, I think we need to just start with kind of a broad overview to kind of orient people about what we're talking about today. I don't know a lot about juvenile life sentences. What do we need to know about how parole works for for these kind of um, kind of incarcerated people? Yeah. So um, there's there's no minimum age for receiving a life sentence in Maryland. And historically, that has led to people under the age of 18 who have committed a serious felony receiving a life sentence, most of which are life sentences with the chance at parole. Um, But in 1995, the Democratic Maryland governor at the time, Paris Glendening, who holds ultimate authority over parole decisions in the state, um, said, and quote, life means life, and that he would not grant parole to any offenders serving life, um, and including those uh, who committed crimes as juveniles. Um, Over the next two decades, uh, parole was not granted once by a Maryland governor. Um, And as this was taking place also, um, the Supreme Court had come out with multiple opinions saying that it's unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life without parole, except in those rare cases of what it described as irreparable corruption. So um, it led to this, this conflict. Yeah, so it sounds like basically um, the Supreme Court said you have to offer some mechanism for parole, but Maryland had one on the books that it just wasn't actually using. Right. It seemed that there was this written parole process, but over the last two decades, um, regardless of the fact that there was that written parole process on the books, that parole just was not being offered. So the conflict between those two things led to, you know, the the lawsuit that was at the center of your story. It's a great story. Everyone should go read it. It's on Law 360, our new Pulse uh, offering. Um, but tell us a little bit about what um, what what was, you know, at issue in this lawsuit and who brought it and everything like that. Yeah, sure. So um, at issue in this lawsuit was essentially what um, the ACLU had um, argued was an unconstitutional 
uh, parole system. Uh, they filed the lawsuit in 2016, and um, they filed it at the time with a uh, attorney who is now with Pillsbury. And he told me that he got involved um, working on this after working on similar cases uh, with uh, the ACLU. Um, attorneys from Wiley eventually got involved in this and um, started working in 2017. And um, in, in a case like this, it was really just all revolving around finding out what the parole process was like in Maryland and why it was not um, and why it was not leading to uh, at least what it said on the books. Yeah. So as they dug into this, I mean, obviously, cases like this one can be quite sprawling. And you said it's been many years to get us to the point we're talking about now. Um, eventually, they did settle with the state itself um, to resolve this dispute about how parole was being implemented. What did they get out of that settlement? Um, so uh, they, they got a slate of reforms. I think uh, one of the most important reforms was that it's requiring the, uh, the governor, the state parole commission, and uh, the state division of correction to start giving mitigating weight to the age when a crime was committed in parole decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no uh, explicit um, kind of defined process for something like that. Um, there were also a lot of um, requirements re just really regarding um, transparency, things like recording parole hearings um, and uh, giving more reasons as to what they're considering in the parole process to the, to the candidates. Um, things like just so they can get their application together and see um, what the criteria is being considered. Um, and, and another one also was there there once was a uh, uh, categorical barrier blocking um, a lifer from moving below a medium security prison. Um, that was eliminated. And, uh, and what an attorney told me about that, what I, you know, I found uh, telling is just, you know, Security levels can be, you know, a graduation to reentry to society. Um, so moving beyond a, a medium security prison to a mi minimum security prison can just be part of that 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 process. I think the 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 substantive issues that we're talking about here are very interesting. But I also thought from a you know business of law perspective, a procedural perspective, the mm -hmm. the way that this lawsuit was brought, you know, a combination of Wiley and Pillsbury, two very, very powerful, big uh, national law firms working with the ACLU. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, how they were able to work together, why this, you know, this alliance sort of came about um, in in this situation. Yeah, I, I found that that really interesting. And, and I think uh, what I've gathered is that in in cases like these, um, the understanding I've gotten is that there's this match of issue expertise that a nonprofit like the ACLU has that's that, that has really dedicated itself to understanding an issue around mass incarceration, in this case, parole, and then just kind of matching that with the added muscle that a, that a private law firm can provide, especially when it comes to years-long litigation. Um, by the end of this case, there was a team of seven attorneys at Wiley, uh, partners and associates who were working on the discovery, studying the parole process, um, doing things such as that. Uh, there was the attorney at Pillsbury who I mentioned. So I think in, in these regards, I think um, it's this match that's not um, that's not unusual. It's um, something that's uh, especially in a case of for ACLU of Maryland, they um, they just don't have the same resources that a big law firm does, but they do have the expertise. So it's this like this marrying of, of both those things. Yeah, it also seems like we're um, talking about an issue where 
a lot of synergies had to come together. The marrying of the the two groups of attorneys that could work on this, but also it seems like the time is ripe to revisit a lot of things related to incarceration. Did anybody talk to you about why this case is important to have moved forward? I mean, I think, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, people really were more in the camp of that sentiment that the former governor of Maryland said, which they all thought like life should be life. Why, why have attitudes changed and, and why did attorneys say they were keen to work on this case? Yeah, I think um, it was really about, you know, exactly shining this this light on on what uh, the impacts are. And it also comes as, you know, there's just been more awareness regarding um, what it means to sentence someone to life in prison and what it means to uh, lock up uh, as many people as, as the nation does. And I think... Um, one of the things that I was talked about a lot was really just about re- rehabilitation. These attorneys just talked about how um, they could even understand from the, the named plaintiffs in the lawsuit. There were three named plaintiffs and and um, they had committed very serious crimes and over. Uh, but they had also um, over the previous decades gone through these parole processes several times and just gotten rejected without any reason as to why they were rejected. So I think it was just this um, understanding that there um, that there are certain reforms that uh, that could just help uh, rehabilitate people and get them back into society. And th- this case has come amid a a broader push, right, to re-examine that stuff, not just this individual issue, this issue of, um, you know, people who were sentenced as juveniles, but, you know, a, a, a broader sort of effort uh, to 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 dig into this. Yeah, that's what I've uh, I found really interesting is that uh, there's this timing and that this this uh, lawsuit was also able to shine more light on the parole process. And and even right now, lawmakers are pushing for other changes to the parole system, um, such as getting the getting the governor out of it. Um, Maryland is one of just three states in the U.S. where uh, the governor has the ultimate authority over parole decisions. And it's uh, a lot of people have argued that uh, that politicizes those decisions. Mm-hmm. Paris Glendening, um, the governor in 1995, who um, made the famous "life means life" pronouncement, he has expressed regret for that um, this, that uh, statement and has has um, approved the uh, the push to get the the governor out of it. So I think it. Uh, it shows that um, both in the courts and in the legislature that uh, there's been a, a lot of um, uh, kind of uh, review into uh, this this system and, and how it works. Justin, thanks for coming on and breaking this one down for us. Um, I really didn't know anything about parole and how it was working. So lots of interesting things to continue watching as Maryland reevaluates the system. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. about all the time we have today for the show um thanks a lot for being with me today bill and holding it down while alex is away happy to be here it's you know it's about to hit 70 degrees outside in brooklyn so i might uh might just cut out of work for the rest of the day don't tell anyone 
Uh, that feels like a good call. Really wish I could do that too, but I think people are emailing me as we speak needing me to do stuff. So let's get out of here. Um, Want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show as well. Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our producers, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Justin Wise, and contributing reporters, Lauren Berg and Dave Simpson. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you're listening. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about today, go over to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.